All right, well, I'm glad that you're here, and if you're tuning in online, thank you for doing that. I want to ask you a question tonight. Have you ever heard of the doomsday clock? Anybody? You may not know what it is, but have you heard of the doomsday clock? All right, several of you have. It's been maintained since 1947. It was started by Albert Einstein and a group of scientists. And today the clock is still maintained by a select group of scientists. Now, it's not a literal clock, but rather it represents a countdown to impending global catastrophe. Since 1947, key scientists in America have been trying to point our attention to the fact that something is going to happen one day. That there's going to be a catastrophic end to our world. And since 1947, Albert Einstein and scientists like him have tried to draw our attention to the impending global catastrophe, otherwise known as the end of the world. Uh, and the way it works, again, it's not a real clock, it's just clock hands on a, and a clock face, and and the closer the clock hands are set to midnight, then the nearer these scientists feel that we are to doom and disaster. For example, a few years ago, they set the clock, and, and they base it on what they see happening in the world for that year. Uh, what they see happening in the world in, in, in uh, many different ways, uh, and I'll refer to some of that in a moment. <clears throat> but a few years ago, they set the, the doomsday clock. In other words, when it hits midnight, that's when they say that's the day of of disaster. That's the day of catastrophe. And so a few years ago they set the clock at five minutes till midnight. Talked about how bad things were in the world. A year later they advanced the clock two minutes, three minutes till midnight. So in other words the closer the clock gets to midnight the nearer these scientists believe we are to doom and disaster. Well in January this year they met again and they set the, the clock, the doomsday clock, once again, they set it. And this time they set it, at, set it to 100 seconds to midnight. These are not religious people. I, I mean, they're not, this is not a group of pastors or theologians or anything like that. Uh, these are a group of scientists. And, and they've set the doomsday clock to 100 seconds to midnight. It's the closest that they've ever set the clock. By the way, sometimes they'll go back, you know, move, the, move it backwards if things have improved in our world. Or sometimes they move it forward, depending on what's happening. Uh, again, there's real no scientific calculation that they use. It's really a measure of a sense of urgency within them and within the world in light of world events. For example, this year as they looked at COVID, as they looked at the war in Ukraine, as they looked at the threats to global economy, as they looked at uh, nuclear uncertainties in places like Russia and China and North Korea, as they looked at all kinds of things happening like that in our world, and the, the, the prospect of World War III breaking out, then they decided we need to set the clock to 100 seconds to midnight. Ray Pritchard, Pastor Ray Pritchard, I read recently, he said, describing what's happening in our world, he said, we're dancing with disaster. I mean, we used to think World War III is just, you know, something you find in a comic book or in a movie, but World War III, or at least the thought of World War III, is not that far-fetched anymore. 
If something goes wrong in Ukraine, it won't take long before somebody pushes the wrong button or somebody makes the wrong decision. And countries suddenly could be in World War III. Our text tonight seems to be very timely and very appropriate. Keeping in mind the doomsday clock is now set for 100 seconds to midnight, I want you to open God's Word to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. Last week we looked at verses 1 through 6 tonight. Tonight we pick up in verse 7. Very appropriate, very timely. Here's what the Word of God says. The end of all things is near. Let's just stop there. The end of all things is near. Last week, as we looked at verses 1 through 6, we learned that followers of Jesus don't do what they used to do. If I could kind of summarize last week's study, it would be that followers of Jesus don't do what they used to do. And he tells us in chapter 4, verse 1, that he challenges all believers to arm yourself against sin and to abstain from sin. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered in, the, in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. Because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. Christians don't do what they used to do. That's why he says in verse 3, uh, he talks about you've spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do. Christians don't do what they used to do. That, that was last week. You've spent enough time in the past doing what pagans do. Now, Peter puts it all into perspective, understanding what he said in verses 1 through 6. He puts it all into perspective with verse 7. Let me read that verse to you again, and we'll read it several times tonight. The end of all things is near. But, but what does that even mean? Well, the short answer is that's a reference to the second coming of Christ. That's what he's talking about. How close are we to that day? Of course, you know and I know that we don't have a date on the calendar, but how close are we to that day? Let me let Scripture answer that question for you. Four different verses, if you're taking notes. Uh, you might want to write down these references. By the way, I should have told you, if you're taking notes, the title is The End of All Things. And it comes straight out of verse 7. The end of all things is near. And so my title is The End of All Things. How close are we to that day? Well, the New Testament tells us that the return of the Lord is really not that far away. Uh, for example, in Romans thirteen twelve, the Bible says, The night is nearly over, the day is almost here. That was Romans thirteen twelve. Philippians 4, 5 says, the Lord is at hand. He's just right there. James 5, 8, which we read tonight, the Lord's coming is near. Revelation 22, 20 says, he who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come Lord Jesus. It just seems like when you read scripture over and over again, the scriptures remind us that the time is short and that the end is near. In our text tonight, Peter speaks with urgency. And yet he speaks also with simplicity. As he says these words that seem a little bit puzzling. And I'll tell you why they're puzzling in a second. Speaking with urgency and simplicity, Peter says or writes these 
puzzling words. He says, the end, the end of all things is near. Now, the reason that's a little bit puzzling, can we be honest? How long ago was that written? About roughly 2,000 years ago. That doesn't sound very near to me. How about you? When he wrote that 2,000 years ago, the end of all things is near. And 2,000 years later, we're still waiting. That's a little bit puzzling. But I think the key to understanding what he says here is to understand the Christian doctor of, doctrine of eminence. If you want to write that down, the Christian doctrine of eminence. Or to say it another way, we need to learn how the Bible tells time. That's the easier way to say it. We need to learn how the Bible tells time. Look at the word end. <clears throat> Verse 7. The word end refers to completion. Or to a conclusion. Get this idea in your mind. The, the completion of something. The conclusion of something. Uh, there's a goal that has been achieved. Alright? It's good for us to be reminded that God is in charge. And in these weeks when the world just breaks our heart. And, and in these times when we wonder what in the world is happening. God is working toward the completion of His plan. And absolutely nothing takes him by surprise. You could translate that verse this way. The goal of all things has come near. The goal of all things. So here's the picture, if I'm understanding this right. Peter, <coughs> excuse me, Peter is, is describing a time this way. Imagine that Jesus is in heaven right now at the right hand of God. And he's waiting on God to say, now. The end of all things is near. The, the goal that God is working towards is about to be completed. And Jesus is standing at God's right hand at the throne of God. And he's waiting on God to say, now. That's the doctrine of eminence, the Christian doctrine of eminence, that the return of Christ indeed could be at any time. Now, look in your Bibles for a moment, uh, especially if you have a different translation. In the NIV, it says the end of all things is near. Does anybody else have a, another translation that uses a different word? Yes, ma'am. At hand. Yeah. Can you read that sentence? <clears throat> Excuse me, that sentence? All right, the end, the end of all things is at hand. It's again talking about the imminency of Christ that he could come back at any moment. <clears throat> and as the secular scientists are trying to say to us, that could just be a hundred seconds away. The doomsday clock. A hundred seconds till midnight. One Bible scholar has estimated there are over 1,800 references to the second coming of Christ in the Old Testament alone. An amazing study revealed that one out of 30 verses in the New Testament, one out of 30 verses in the New Testament, speak about His return. Somebody else said that uh, for every prophecy in the Bible concerning the first coming of Jesus, there are eight in the Bible about his second coming. 
So here's what I want you to think about. I want you to think about the, the idea that you're one of the persecuted Christians that Peter is writing to. I want you to respond to this question as best you can. When Peter writes, the end of all things is near. Was that something that terrified them or was that something that probably encouraged them? If you're a persecuted Christian and you get that message, how do you feel about the words that you read? Hope? What did you say, Billy? Encouraged? It's the idea, if you think about the audience, the, the idea would be, <clears throat> I don't have to endure, the, endure this much longer. The end of all things is near, at least from their perspective. That was their hope. And so, look at the text and see another important word. The end of all things is near, and what's the next word? Therefore. This is a term of conclusion. It's a connection, of connector, of course, connecting the previous things to the things that are coming next. But it's also in this context a term of conclusion because it pauses, it causes us to pause and to ponder what does that mean for us personally? If the end of all things is near, therefore, how does that affect our lives? It's interesting that there is a therefore in verse 7 because Peter is not just trying to satisfy our curiosity and tell us about the second coming. Everybody's interested in that. Everybody wants to talk about that. Everybody wants to study the second coming. Peter's not just trying to satisfy our curiosity. He's trying to point us towards living differently. And so there's a therefore. The end of all things is near. Therefore, we need to live differently. So put, put your finger there in 1 Peter. And I want you to find 1 John chapter 2. I want to show you another scripture. 1 John chapter 2. Over to the right. 1 John chapter 2. I want you to look for verse um, 28. And now dear children. Continue in him. So that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. So that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed. So he says, now dear children, continue in him. In other words, the return of Christ in the Bible is always presented as a great motivation to action. Because Christ is coming back, because that is a certainty, it's always presented as a motivation to action. And that's what John was talking about. So, with that in mind, going back to 1 Peter, Peter says, the end of verse 7, the end of all things is near, therefore, let me call you to action. The end of all things is near, therefore, let me tell you how that should affect the way you live your lives. The end of all things is near, therefore, let me explain to you, practically speaking, what that means as you live day to day. And he gives us four things. If you're taking notes, I'm going to give you uh, four things that we should focus on if we really believe that the end of all things is near, that Christ could return at any time. First of all, number one is this. You should pray faithfully. Pray faithfully. Here's what he says. Therefore, be clear-minded... 
and self-controlled so that you can pray. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled. The the idea of being clear-minded and self-controlled means that our fears and our passions don't carry us away. Clear-minded and self-controlled means that we don't get overcome by what we see happening around us. Clear-minded and self-controlled means that we, we don't let our, our physical passions carry us down the wrong road. We don't, we don't get involved in the wrong things. Um, just today, Lisa texted me about uh, a pastor. I'm not going to mention who it is. It's not a Southern Baptist. It's, uh, but she was uh, doing, considering buying a book that this prominent pastor, theologian, had written and I thought it was an interesting question she texted me. She said, is this guy still a good guy? It was a day you didn't even have to ask that question, right? There was a day when, you know, you just knew that uh, this is a good man, this is a good woman, and that's just the way they live their lives, and that's the way they were going to end their lives. They're going to keep serving the Lord. They're not going to, they're not going to go down some alley and... And mess up. We're living in a time when our heroes are falling. Left and right. And so this word is so practical. Therefore, because the end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear minded. And notice this phrase. And self controlled. So that you can pray. It's interesting, that word pray there is, is in the plural tense. It's talking not just praying privately. But it's talking about praying in all different settings. It's talking about praying privately, yes, but also publicly. Praying by ourselves and praying with others. Praying in our homes and praying with God's people. Be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can have times of real prayer. one of your translations uh, King James does it use the word watchful could you read that verse yes please okay responsible and watchful the idea here in this whole verse is that you are aware of what's happening in the world and you're praying with purpose. You're aware of what's happening around you and you're praying with purpose. In other words, Peter is saying, keep your emotions under control so that you can pray. Don't let your fear keep you from praying. Don't let your lust get you in, the, in, in a place where you're not serving the Lord. But clear-minded, self-controlled, so that you can pray. I ran across a sentence that grabbed my attention. It says, if we live without prayer, we will die without hope. If we live without prayer, we will die without hope. So in light of all this happening in our world today, don't panic, pray. Just write that down. In, in light of everything happening in our world today, don't panic, pray. This is what Peter is saying. The end of all things is near. Therefore, here's what that means, how you should live your life. Be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. That's your first approach. 
Days when others are panicking. Days when others are filled with despair. Days, other days when people are wringing their hands. Pray faithfully to your Heavenly Father. Here's the second thing you could do. The first one is pray faithfully. Number two, he says, also number two, love deeply. The implication, the second implication of of us kind of living on the edge of eternity is that we should love people like we've never loved them before. Look how he describes it. Above all, verse 8, above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Again, do not divorce this verse from verse 7. Verse 7 is the foundation to everything we're looking at tonight. And in verse 7 he says, The end of all things is near. Therefore, here's how you live out your life until that time comes. The end of all things is near, so therefore pray faithfully. And secondly, love deeply. I mean, that's exactly, it comes straight from the text. Above all, love each other deeply. And he says, because, there's a because there. Love each other deeply because, tell me what the because is, church. Because love covers a multitude of sins. This is, if I counted right, this is the fifth time in 1 Peter that Peter has challenged us to love and to love sincerely and to love deeply. And the phrase above all reminds us that this is not a Uh, an issue that is a peripheral issue, but this is a primary issue. Above all, this is talking about the primacy of love. We're not called to some kind of emotional, sentimental kind of feeling towards people. The idea behind this is to have a a kind of a fervent love. In, In these end times, when we're 100 seconds to midnight, one of the things that the world needs is to see and experience and and understand love. We have to love people dearly. It's an, in, an intense kind of love he's talking about. In fact, if you study the Greek word here, uh, th- this love, this fervent love where he says, uh, love each other deeply. That word deeply is the idea uh, of a horse that is running at full speed and strains with every gallop, stretches out his leg with every gallop, trying to go as hard and as fast and as far as he can. It's straining, as Paul would say, toward what is ahead. It's an intense kind of love he's talking about. And it's a love that happens because you recognize the end of all things is near. This intense kind of love is not normal. It's godly. Um, Stephen Cole, an author, says that this kind of biblical love is often more... Listen to this, I like the way he said it. He said, this kind of biblical love, biblical love is often more sweat than sweet because it takes an effort to love some people. I thought, well, that's honest. The love that he's talking about here is not a sentimental kind of love. It's a love that sometimes takes more sweat than sweet because not everybody's easy. To love. 1 Corinthians 13 verse 7 says that love bears all things. 
Don't you think of it? You've read that scripture all the time. I know you have. You've heard it at weddings. But it says, love bears all things. And that word bears is, is the idea of covers. It's the same word that they would use as they were talking about a thatched roof of a house. Bears all things, covers all things. And it's interesting that Peter picks up that, that concept here. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sin. I want you to find in your Bible, put your finger there in First Peter. I want you to go to Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12. Proverbs 10, 12 says what? Somebody read it for me. Yeah. NIV says, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all sins. You see, Peter was actually quoting Scripture here when he gives us this reference in verse 8. He says, Above all, love each other deeply because... Love covers over, covers over, what's that next word? Uh, what? A multitude of sins. Hatred, Proverbs tells us, hatred stirs things up. Love covers things up. Do you remember, um, <clears throat> we don't talk about this very much in Baptist churches, but do you remember the story of Noah? We only tell part of that story. Do you remember the part in the story of Noah that he got drunk and laid uncovered in his tent? You, you, you remember? That that's the part we don't talk about. That old Noah, he got drunk and he laid, as we would say in East Tennessee, naked in his tent. And if you remember the story, his son Ham saw his dad and he went and told others about it. And then Shem and Jephthah, when they were made aware, Genesis 9.23 says that they took a garment, they laid it on their shoulders and they backed up and covered the nakedness of their father. It's a beautiful illustration that love covers a multitude of sins. One son just wanted to joke about it and gossip about it. And the others wanted to, because of love for their father, they wanted to cover his sin. Now, I recognize that, especially with the report that has come out with Southern Baptists and all that kind of thing, uh, we, sometimes we have to talk about these kind of verses. Uh, so I'm not saying that that we should condone sins because the Bible says you need to love people and, and so you just have to condone everything and look the other way. I'm not saying that. I'm simply saying this. There is a time and there is a place to confront sin, but there is also a time and there's a place to bring comfort and to cover sin. Theologian Wayne Grudem gives us this perspective. He said, and I quote, when fervent love is found in a fellowship of Christians, listen to this, this is so wise. 
When fervent love is found in a fellowship of Christians, many small offenses and even some large ones are readily overlooked and forgotten. But where love is lacking, every word is viewed with suspicion and every action is liable to misunderstanding. I thought that was so wise. When a person wrongs me, I can either take them hostage or I can set them free. You can too. When somebody wrongs you, you can either take them hostage, make them pay, or you can set them free. Peter says, the end of all things is near. Therefore, in addition to praying faithfully, we need to love. Above all, love deeply. So, practically speaking, before we go on to the next one, practically speaking, what does it mean to cover over the sins of others? I'm going to give you four things if you want to write this down. Ken Sand uh, said this. I'm just giving him credit. Four promises we can make when we extend forgiveness, when we decide to out of love to cover over somebody's sins. What does that really mean, practically speaking? Ken Sandman said it means four things. Number one, that you're saying, I will not dwell on this incident. I will not dwell on this incident. Number two, I will not bring up this incident again and use it against you. That's a good one. This is good information for husbands and wives too, by the way. Love covers over a multitude of sins. I will not bring up this incident again and use it against you. Number three, I will not talk to others about this incident. I will not talk to others about this incident. Number four, I will not let this incident stand between us or hinder our personal relationship. I will not let this incident stand between us or hinder our personal relationship. And again, because of the report that we're reading and it has come out this week, I just feel I need to say one more time, I'm not saying that you don't hold people accountable for sin. There are times when they need to be held accountable. There are times when authorities need to be called. There are times when, when they have to pay the price for what they have done. I want to be very clear about that. Um, if you're talking about any kind of abuse, this is, we're not talking about, well, you just need to forgive them and move on. I'm not talking about it. There are times when, because of abuse, the authorities need to be called and punishment and judgment needs to be rendered. But I, there are also times when we need to forgive the stupid things people do and let love cover a multitude of sins. Does that make sense? I hope it does. Because, listen, we all do stupid things sometimes. Or maybe you don't. Maybe it's just me. We all do stupid things sometimes. Peter says, the end of all things is near. I'm, this is Shorter's translation. I'm, I'm just break it down as simple as I can. The end of all things is near. So pray like the, all, the end of all things is near. And number two, don't keep holding on to a bunch of junk. It's just not worth it. The end of all things is near. Let God handle that. Let God handle that. The end of all things is near. Just let God settle it and you let go of it. Do you know how much happier you would be if you'd let God settle it and you let go of it? The end of all things is near. Therefore, pray fervently and love deeply. And number three, I'm going to move on a little more quickly. Number three, he said share freely. Because the end of all things is near, share freely. 
verse 7, I'm sorry, verse 9, he said, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. I thought it's interesting. He, he didn't just say, offer hospitality to one another, period. That's not what he said. Offer hospitality to one another, oh, by the way, without grumbling. It's interesting. I, I'm really, really not exactly sure why unless he had experienced that personally or he knew that that was an issue with some of the people. Uh, can I remind you that in that day and time, they didn't have a motel, motel 6 or Holiday Inn Express to stay at? And so, you know, when the prophet was passing through, guess where he stayed? Stayed at your house. He, he couldn't stay at the, the nearby hotel. He stayed at your house. Or if somebody was in need, guess where they went? They went to your house. And so, so it's, it's just kind of interesting to me. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Hospitality literally means to be friendly and welcoming and generous to, to guests, especially to those who are strangers in need. And the idea, I'm not going to take long here at all, but the idea is that an open heart leads to an open home. An open heart leads to an open home. Uh, so... Uh, Share freely, he said. The end of all things is near. So when you have the opportunity to, to minister to somebody, when you have the opportunity to, to uh, take care of somebody, when you have the opportunity to help somebody, offer hospitality to one another and do it without grumbling. Number four. I wanted to get to, to do this last one because uh, I want to take just a few minutes here. I, I, this is an important verse and I'll explain it. Number four is serve graciously. Serve graciously. The end of all things is near, verse 7. Therefore, serve graciously. Here's the way he describes it. Verse 10 and 11. <clears throat> Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others. You might want to underline that, that idea of serving others. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others. Faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one who speaks the very words of God. And if anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides. So that in all things, God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Uh, these verses that I just read are, are kind of like old friends to me. And the reason I say that kind of old friends, that was, uh, I did my, my doctoral work on spiritual gifts and one of the scriptures, one of the four major scriptures in my doctoral thesis was these verses right here. So I spent a great deal of time uh, in those last two or three verses that I've read. And, and I just want to pull out a few principles and kind of unpack these two verses uh, very quickly, phrase by phrase. Uh, first of all, I want you to look at the phrase, each one. In other words, everyone has at least one spiritual gift. Everyone, every Christian, I should say, has at least one spiritual gift. And look at the text. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others. Everyone has at least one spiritual gift. Would you notice also the phrase, has received? Whatever gift he has received. Every spiritual gift is a gift from God. It's something God has given you, 
I, I wish we had the time. I, I get excited about this. I wish we had the time to talk deeper about that. But every spiritual gift is a gift God has given you. It, in fact, the very word gift means grace. It's a gift of grace. It's, it's God's goodness as he gifts you, enables you to do something for the kingdom. Now notice, each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others. In other words, every member of God's family should be serving others. We're, we're every min- I, I said it this way years ago, and I, it wasn't original with me, but every member is a minister. That's really what that verse is saying. Every member is a minister. Um, and we need to be faithful in how we use our gifts. Look how he describes it, and I'm almost done. Look how he describes it. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others faithfully. Look at that word. Faithfully administering. <coughs> Excuse me. Faithfully administering God's grace. In its, what's that next, those last two words? In its what? In its various forms. A spiritual gift is really a divine enablement empowered by the Holy Spirit where He enables you to do something for the kingdom of God. And the interesting thing is that your gifting is different probably from the person in front of you or beside you. It's various. The various forms of living out your spiritual gifts are different. And yet in verse 11 he summarizes this wide spectrum of spiritual gifts. He summarizes these, these, this wide spectrum of spiritual gifts into two categories. Verse 11. He talks about speaking gifts and he talks about serving gifts. Look at verse 11. <clears throat> if anyone speaks, he should do it as one who, speak, who is speaking the very words of God. That, that always gets me, that, that scripture there. And if anyone serves, he should do it with the strength. God provides so that in all things, watch this, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory and the power forever and ever. And can you say amen? Amen. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads for we're going to end a little differently. Heads bowed. <clears throat> Peter ends this text basically with a doxology. I want you to hear it again. So that in all things, God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. To Him be the glory. The glory has the idea, heads bowed, eyes closed. The, glory, the word glory has the idea of weight. That when we see God in all of His glory, we, 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 we see the, and I'm talking, when I say weight, I mean W-E-I-G-H-T. We, we experience the, the weight of His glory. We experience the, the size of His glory. It's more than we can comprehend. And then it says, to Him be the glory and the power, and it describes describes this glory and power forever and ever, in the strongest way possible, talking about eternity, forever 
and ever. And then it ends with the word amen, which simply means, so let it be. So let it be. Father, thank you for your word, and we join in this doxology. We recognize that the end of all things is near. Therefore, help us to pray faithfully, and to love deeply, and to share freely, and to serve graciously. But more than all of that, I pray, Father, that you'd help us live in such a way so that in all things, God may be praised through Jesus Christ. And to Him, may there be the glory and the power forever and ever. So let it be. Amen. Thank you so much. God bless you. Appreciate you being here.